This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor, I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guests the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hi, everyone. I am Brent Steele. This is the first episode of my podcast, the Hayseed Scholar podcast. I uh, am giving this podcasting thing a little bit of a, a dry run or test run, if you will, uh, going forward. And it's basically just going to be a podcast of me interviewing fellow scholars, uh, people I know, people I work with, people that do research kind of in my area. Um, so the first interview I did was with my colleague, uh, Peregrine Schwarzschay, Perry uh, Schwarzschay, back earlier this month. So I'm introing this in May, uh, at the end of May right now, for my brother's studio, uh, Kyle Christopher Steele's uh, studio in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, because he actually knows how to do a podcast and has done one, the Beers and Business Podcast, the Business and Beers Podcast, and also the Kyle Steele Show. The Kyle Steele Show. Uh, So download those on iTunes or your preferred podcasting uh, platform. Um, But I needed to have him help me edit uh, some of my files and some of my interviews. And so I did this interview from the University of Utah studios, uh, the CTLE studios, in the ground floor of the Marriott Library with Perry back on May 1st. So what you hear will be that interview, which is roughly uh, an hour long. But uh, we kind of just jump in, and we cover quite a few topics, uh, sort of do a kind of an, a biographical sketch uh, of Perry, uh, a biographical overview, actually, of what she's done, uh, how she got into um, becoming an academic, and some of the questions that she's pursued in her research, and some of the views that she has on doing research. <clears throat> but I don't actually give a sort of a quick sketch at the beginning and introduce her in terms of um, in terms of her, uh, I guess, uh, current uh, biography. So let me do that right now. So Perry Schwarzschay is a professor in the political science department at the University of Utah. She published her early research using experimental methods and rational choice theory. She shifted to theoretical interests that led to research focusing on methodological practices in political science and interpretive methods. With Devoriano, she is co-editor of the Routledge series and in Interpretive Methods. They co-authored the first volume in that series, Interpretive Research Design, Concepts, and Processes. And we talk a little bit about that series, but we also talk about the second edition and the first edition of her co-edited uh, with Devora, Interpretation and Method, Empirical Research Methods, and the Interpretive Term by Emmy Sharp. Uh, the second edition appeared in 2014, uh, and we spend quite a bit of time in this interview discussing that uh, as well. Uh, She's currently uh, interested in um, examining uh, the U.S. Human Subjects Protection Policy, the IRB Institutional Review Boards that are uh, involved in that uh, policy, and so we talked a little bit about that at the end as well. She's been the past president of the Western Political Science Association, 
and uh, the recipient of a number of awards, including a National Science Foundation grant to co-organize the workshop on interpretive methods and political science, which she, uh, which led her to organize the Methods Cafe at both the Western Political Science Association meeting and the um, APSA uh, meeting every fall, and now I'm co-organizing that, so we talk a little bit about that as well. So this is my interview with Perry Schwarzschay. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, talk to you soon. Uh, Professor Schwarzschay, thank you for um, being my guinea pig for this. <laughs> You're most <laughs> for, welcome. For this podcast. And um, and what's interesting is uh, your name, Peregrine, uh, means journey, meandering journey. It does. Uh, it does. And you actually put it in your CV, my peregrinations in the political science discipline have taken me from. And so you mentioned in there that, you know, you've had a journey, and that's what we're going to discuss uh, okay. today is sort of your journey. And we can we can discuss certain things in more detail than others. But, um, but you went to Southern Oregon State College uh, for your undergrad. And then did your master's and PhD at the University of Oregon. Um, but you did, if I remember correctly, you didn't grow up in Oregon. You grew no. up in Montana? In Montana. Okay. Yeah. So what was that like? What, what, Montana? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a kid, uh, I get off the bus, the school bus. My mom had, when my mom went there, she, before my dad arrived and married her, mm-hmm. um, she had about 60 acres, and so I would go down into the meadow and spend, you know, an hour and a half by myself mm-hmm. just wandering around the meadow, talking to the crows. I still do a mean crow call mm-hmm. to embarrass my kids, <laughs> um, wandering in the river. So I spent a lot of time alone as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Meandering. Meandering, yeah. yeah, yeah, exploring. And wandering. Uh, yeah, because I remember we had, um, for one of the Maxwell lectures, we had uh, Kathy Ferguson here to talk about anarchism and, and walking, the politics of walking or whatever I think was her um, was her lecture. And I do remember you referencing – do you remember this? The, that you referenced, uh, you know, growing up in Montana right. and just and – wa- if not walking, wandering around. Yes, and, yeah. yeah. So were you always um, – Kind of an intellectual kid then, or or was it one of these things where it sort of it was dynamically sort of uh, well, you know, my my parents were both from the East Coast. Okay, um, they had particular rules. Um, you know, when you sat down at the dinner table, you weren't supposed to gossip. You mm-hmm. were supposed to talk about events, um, and then I guess it was about sixth grade. Um, where they pulled me out with a couple of other kids for some, I don't know, enrichment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I was in high school, I I designed an art study class for myself that they let me do. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, yeah, I was always interested in ideas. And in fact, that class that I designed was where I learned about the Paris salons. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to go back. Mm-hmm. These people got together in coffee shops and talked about intellectual ideas. Yeah. And so that was kind of a birth of, of the desire to, to um, go into academia, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Great. And then so – and obviously that, that was, um, I would assume, uh, fostered and, and reinforced – 
during your undergrad uh, years as well, or, yeah. or was undergrad sort of a trial and error of what you wanted to do? Well, it was trial and error in the sense that um, I took uh, a poetry class in which I got a D, mm. mm-hmm. and I couldn't understand why my poem was, my interpretation of the poem was bad. And the professor couldn't give me a good answer. Uh And that kind of steered me toward the social sciences. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this issue of what makes an interpretation good good or bad Mm -hmm. was ironically now looking back something that steered me towards the social sciences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that was always one of my kind of existential questions when I moved away from positivism to interpretivism was – well, I thought I knew what made good research. Mm-hmm. You know, I had those clear standards of validity and reliability and all of that. And so then when I got started looking, working with the Devoriano and thinking about interpretivism, I thought, what are the standards? Mm-hmm. So, of course, that was kind of the genesis for uh, a key chapter that I did for interpretation and methods in 2006. Right. And and I'm going to – that's one of the key moments I wanted to, to flag here in a second. But even some of that questioning then um, in terms of uh, interpretation, or, were you doing some of that in your Ph.D. program, in your master's and oh, Ph.D. program? Oh, absolutely not. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, no, no. My training in my Ph.D. program was only quantitative. Mm-hmm. And only um, – I did have a philosophy of social science class, but it was very, very traditional, only looked really at the natural sciences, you know, mm-hmm. starting with Popper and Kuhn and all Lack-a-tosh of that. Lakatosh a little bit. Lakatosh, yeah. definitely yeah. Lakatosh. But no, no sense of why – you might need a philosophy of social science that mm-hmm. is that might be different from the natural sciences. No discussion of that at all. So, so when was the, I guess, the reflective or, or questioning period then <laughs> where you started to move away then? Obviously, after, after the PhD? Or? It was after the PhD. So yeah, I made this very kind of conscious choice in graduate school. I had these three professors one semester One was Jim Davies, who was famous for the J-curve, for the study of revolution. One was Bill Mitchell, who was one of the founders of rational choice in political science. Um, And then the third one was Goldberg, who was a Marxist. And when I got done with those three courses, I decided to go towards rational choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And... The people there, uh, John Orbell was, you know, he was a he was an intellectual, right? If you walked by the, his doorway, he'd pull you in to talk about some idea, and he had a grant, and he seemed really interesting, and I found rational choice very interesting. But the almost as soon as I graduated, I started to question the tenets of rational choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mainly because of my experience as a woman in the discipline. I was just going to say, so all of the names that you mentioned, it, it, they're, I, I, they're familiar to me as well, but it's like all dudes, right? Oh, so. there were no women in uh-huh. our department. I, I think one came, a couple came uh, while I was there, but I didn't have any courses from a woman in my mm-hmm. department. No. And in your, like, if you had such a thing as a graduate <clears throat> cohort, I don't know how big the cohorts would have been at, at Oregon back then, but um, – were there other female graduate students or graduate uh, colleagues at least? There were had? other female graduate students, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, 
But I didn't really interact with them that much. I mean, what I remember was the drop-off from the people who got a master's and then those who finished the PhD. I see. And there was one point at which one of the professors, one of the graduate students was complaining how hard she was working. And he said, well, then you don't want to go forward because it doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I remember that really made an impression on me. Mm -hmm. You know, how hard you're working now is how hard you will need to keep working while you're a professor. At the the, very least, right? Yes. It's probably going to get harder. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then after, so after you got the PhD, then there there was an interest in um, not just gender dynamics, but also sort of questioning some of the, I guess, the gospel of what you yeah, had been Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the first thing that disappeared was the sense that you could have a theory that was ahistorical and acultural, mm-hmm. right? A universal theory, a, a physics of the social sciences. So that was the first thing I let go of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... I went I got interested in gender because I was at my first job at SUNY Cortland yep. and there was a women's encampment for future of peace and justice mm-hmm. and you couldn't do this today because of IRB and I just said to my husband of the time well I'm going to go and see what this is about and I drove down there and I spent a couple days and then I went back and I said well that's really interesting I'm going to go back And then I went back with a little convenience survey, did some more observations, and that was the beginning of my journey, really, because that's when I got interested in in feminism and learned about feminism by working here with a graduate student. And we published a paper together on that. But I went to the encampment with a rational choice framework. Mm-hmm. <laughs> looking for free riding. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so and then you mentioned this earlier, but this was going to be one of the high points of um, what I wanted to talk about today, um, about meeting. So another kind of key moment was meeting Devorah, uh, Yana, who's, who you've uh, has been a, a collaborator, a, a co-conspirator, if you will, <laughs> with you over the years. When did you meet Devorah? I think I met her about 19 or about 2000. Oh, okay. So that I guess kind of recently then. I it feels to me like maybe you, you had <laughs> you know, met I'd, one another even before that. We but, we um, always talk about that and we have to, you know, I'd have to look at my CV. Mm-hmm. It was prior to a Seattle convention. Okay. Um, because in the Seattle convention is when we started research for our first collaboration. That became the PRQ article? That became the PRQ in article. In 2002. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 1999 was kind of – I had these fallow years. As soon as I got tenure until about 1999 when I was schizophrenic and I was mm-hmm. going – I'd go to APSA and I'd go attend rational choice panels. Mm-hmm. And then I'd turn around and I'd attend feminist panels. Mm-hmm. And – they were just really talking past each other at those panels. And so I was trying to wrap my head around what all that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for my last Rational Choice article, which was experimental, um, I, we tried to explore um, gender with Rational Choice. Mm-hmm. And 
when I finally wrote it up, it was kind of saying, no, these are incommensurable, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're rational man actor and feminist ideas are, are not jiving in a, in a useful way. Right. Um, and so one inter, inter, uh, intervention there. So how did – so presumably you had developed a, 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 at least a research community within the Rational Choice uh, group. So what – what was some of the reaction <laughs> within that community to moving to uh, away from yeah. the assumptions of rational choice in your own work and then also just, you know, socially probably interacting with other groups that were right. not sort of commensurable with. It's not just a commensurability of the frameworks. There's a commensurability as well in terms of the personalities that yeah. you might have in the different groups as I well. mean, I do remember after my feminist consciousness was starting to develop a little bit that I went to a rational conference and people were making sexist jokes, and I'm looking around, and nobody is even noticing. Uh-huh. And so that was a little uh, off-putting, I guess. But kind of more interesting was that um, my dissertation advisor, John Orbell, and I got interested in kind of sex-gender issues at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I went towards feminism, and he went towards evolutionary biology. Ah, yeah. mm-hmm. So kind of the last interaction – with him, I started teasing him, and I said, "Well, I'll give you two percent of the variation, John, <laughs> <laughs> and all the rest is, is cultural, it? historical, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was, and and then after during that period, finally to emerge out of that period of the fallow years. Um, what I really started focusing on was this curious issue where you'd speak with individual professors and they would say, you know, the commonplace, well, Mm -hmm. you know, you should choose methods according to your research question. Mm -hmm. And then I'd look around at all the methods courses and they were only quantitative. Mm -hmm. And that's, that led to um, a study of curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it was right when that curriculum study was, was, um, the research was ongoing on that that I met Devorah. Ah, okay. And so after looking at curriculum, then she and I start looking at the methods texts, mm-hmm. right, for that PRQ article. And then the PRQ article looks like, I mean, it developed into what would become a, an iconic, uh, iconic volume, the um, Interpretation and, and Method that mm-hmm. was uh, published in 2006, but was just reissued in 2014 as a mm-hmm. second edition. Yes. So how did you get um, – had you always – like after uh, the, the PRQ article was the idea, let's just keep this um, – Let's keep the show going or – That's funny. You know, I can't really – Or was it that you started – again, socially, you started uh, finding other folks that were kind of involved in this and uh, and I have another follow-up question about the perestroika movement because oh, I know a lot right. of this is going oh, on as right. well. Oh, right. Yes, that is going on at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, I cannot exactly remember the genesis of the 2006 book. Oh, OK. Yeah. Except that it is kind of a normal – outflow from the PRQ article. And I think Devorah hatched this idea, but the idea was to go across the subfields mm-hmm. that um, you will see, you know, there was the, the positivist qualitative methods tradition in comparative mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
American politics was very quantitative. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was to – in the book was to reach across those those subfields. And that was a real challenge for Devorah and me because, you know, she's in planning and administration. I'm in public administration, American politics. So how do you find people in comparative politics and international relations? Political theory, and there there is one planner um, in that book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we wanted to reach across the subfields. Well, and with a quantitative methods textbook, it's probably not too difficult to find folks from particular <laughs> subfields right, across right. the subfields because they're focusing on, d- despite the rhetoric, they're focusing on methods first mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. a lot of their research. So, um, well, so I did have a question about the um, the perestroika movement because. For um, and Tim Patrat mentioned this when he was out here for his uh, talk and workshop with our graduate students. He had, um, I think, he read a, a nomination letter that he had yes. uh, <laughs> that he had sent in previously as uh, sort of the beginning of his talk, which was was great. And it brought me back <clears throat> to that early two thousands when I was in graduate school as well, because the Perestroika movement was it was actually everywhere. Right, so I felt like it had been. It had been going in the 1990s, uh, late 1990s, but the early 2000s, it was also one of those things where despite what any anyone thought of it, um, you had to kind of be familiar with uh, the perestroika movement and, and some of the debates that were going on then. And, and the, the, um, the volume that you have a chapter with Devor, I think, in that volume, right? Uh, the Perestroika Movement volume. Well, I have, I have. That's where one of the so the curriculum research ended up in PS. That's right. And then in the in that book. That's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was not that was neither of those were co-authored. Okay. But how sort of I've always associated you and Devora with the Perestroika Movement, but maybe it was also because the 2002 PRQR article came out right around the, the sort of high tide of perestroika, right. or at least that's what it felt like to me yeah. in, in my years of graduate school. Um, but yeah, what was your involvement with perestroika? Uh, I was I was on the CC list. You were for, for the, the original? the first email. Uh-huh. So that always made me think that I had interacted with Mr. Perestroika mm-hmm. at APSA talking about my curriculum research. I see. So I always had suspicions, but they were never confirmed about who Perestroika was. And I guess for whoever is going to end up listening to this podcast, I guess I assume everyone knows about Perestroika, but some junior scholars may may not be as familiar with it, even though there are echoes of the same types of, we talked about this before, the same types of confrontations and debates that happened in Perestroika seem to be kind of just repeating themselves t- to some degree, or at least rhyming a little bit uh, in the in the DART debates, the IRB debates, mm-hmm. and, s- and some of the recent debates that you have. And, and you never leave those um, those contestations because you have them when it comes to the development of graduate courses and which courses are going to be required in a PhD program and which journals are going to allow so much of this type of research mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but the perestroika, the original Mr. Perestroika letter was an anonymous author that I think was co- it was a letter that was co-authored, right? Uh, uh, well, it came – who knows? I mean it came okay. anonymously from Perestroika mm-hmm. and 
It took on, in particular, the American Political Science Review and what was publish, being published there and focused on the Rudolphs and their work and why their work had not appeared in APSR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a, a confrontation with the dominance of both um, quantitative methods and, to some extent, rational choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a time, I don't remember how many years ago in, the de- in our department here at the University of Utah, where uh, some external reviewers came and said, well, you know, you need to get some, some game theory here. And I said to my colleagues, that wave has crested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's no longer. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, right. it's no longer the, the dominant force that it was in that period mm-hmm. when perestroika was pushing back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then um, right around the time of the 2006 uh, uh, volume was published, that must have been the time that, uh, you know, one of the other iconic contributions that you and Devorah have provided, uh, especially graduate students and junior scholars, but I think a, a, a number of scholars is the Methods Cafe. Um, so were you and Devorah also thinking about the Methods Cafe right around the – was it related to – um, since you were reaching across methods but also subfields related to the, the volume as well? Or was this just something that as you were going to conferences, you thought was um, the, the Methods Cafe would be a good idea because it was something missing? And I think the first version of it was a sort of um, kind of a— Almost a, a little workshop. A workshop, yes, right, yes. right. Um, so, uh, t- yeah, how, how did the Methods so, Cafe come So on? that workshop, uh, we brought in some people that Devorah knew that, that used some different methods. Um, and I do remember the discussion about causality and generalizability mm-hmm. and feeling chagrined that I didn't have a good answer to those questions. Um, and so that was one of the areas that I wanted to pursue when we put that that 2006 volume together mm-hmm. was to how to think about those those questions and and I think we still need to talk more about the meanings of both causality and generalizability. Mm-hmm. So when I teach research methods, I have two handouts, and what they do is they. Uh, It's called Alternative Conceptions of Causality, Alternative Conceptions of Generalizability, and I have the positivist versions and the variations there, Mm -hmm. and then I have um, alternative versions. And what I say to the students is the next time you hear somebody use this word, listen to how they use it Mm -hmm. and then maybe pursue a conversation with them about what they think causality means and what they think generalizability means Mm -hmm. because the – and this was the this was in some senses the genesis as well for the interpretive research design book. It seemed like the research books had kind of a lockdown on the meaning of methods and science mm-hmm. that really needed to be contested if we're a social science. Mm-hmm. And the, and um, and I imagine there's a bit of a, a, a dynamic sort of yin and yang relationship between how you teach. Um, 
well, with all of it, I, I would imagine it's all sort of interdependent and interrelated uh, with how you teach uh, your courses, uh, especially the qualitative research methods, uh, qualitative interpretive research methods course here, and then also the uh, relationships and discussions that have happened at the Methods Cafe over the years, right? Uh, or a little bit, at least. Sure. In terms of uh, especially the... Um, the the table hosts at the Methods Cafe yes. uh, that that you interact with and and recruited and and uh, Devorah did as well and it started at APSA and then also simultaneously at at no, the Western. First, or? it started at the Western. It did start at the Western. Yeah, it started okay. at the Western uh, because Ron Schmidt was the president uh-huh. and we knew Ron and we said we want to try this out and they were very supportive because mm-hmm. that's the you know that's the nature of the Western it is, is yeah. to be a little bit more innovative mm-hmm. and so with that kind of dry run um, then we moved to APSA as well. Mm-hmm. And has it always been the same format where it's uh, the round top tables and uh, students come on in, have a greeter? And well, after after the, the 2005 was this more workshop. It was a workshop. And workshop then one, we yeah. moved, yes, to the tables. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very first one, I remember, oh, we need a host because people walk in and they do not understand because it's <laughs> right. not set up with the typical hierarchy. <laughs> That you have at a typical uh, panel or roundtable or whatever. Right, right. So you really have to – you need the host to tell people, no, this this is bona fide. You can circle. You can talk with anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, Do I have to have prepared questions? No, no, no. (laughs) Explore. Talk. Well, that I mean, it's so. Um, so I'm I'm helping organize the Methods Cafe now at, at the Western, and uh, one of the things that you can tell from so this was a question I had. I was going to ask you down in San Diego during our last uh, Methods Cafe, but I, I I just didn't get a chance because you had so many people you were chatting with at, at your table, but. Um, you know, one of the things that you need is you obviously need somebody that has expertise on particular methods, mm-hmm. particular interpretive methods. And that you can glean nowadays, you know, fairly easily by looking at their CVs or we can look at the program at the Western uh, or at APSA with the, you know, is it within the interpretation and method uh, section? And um, usually by word of mouth, there, there's a way to be able to, to cross match that. But what you don't know and you also need for a successful <laughs> um, cafe, I think, is you also need people that are really good, like doing things that typically the stereotype of academics are not good at, which is um, inviting people into the conversation at the table and everything. And we've, as far as I can tell, we've never had an issue because it's like, there's quite a bit in terms of the Venn diagram, in my experience, there's quite a bit of overlap with people Mm -hmm. that tend to do interpretive methods and people that tend to be also sort of socially adept at, you know, bringing in, uh, especially junior scholars that might be a little bit more reserved, even though they're sitting at a table. Well, if you do interviews. (laughs) There you go. If you do ethnographic work, Mm -hmm. if you're interested in discourse analysis, Mm -hmm. that's the mode itself kind of invites that, mm-hmm. right, a more dialogical uh, approach. Right. Um, I remember at one point I had this exchange with David Layton. And, um, yeah, some of my early experiences asking questions at APSA and getting dismissed with, oh, that's just storytelling. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, he said, no, students need a 
boot camp in methods. And I thought to myself, and you need some metaphor analysis, <laughs> right? Yeah. What What are the implications of boot camp, of boot camp right. for scholarly curiosity and, and all of that? Yeah. Immediately the mind goes to, you know, full metal jacket and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. a Kubrick right. film or something. Right. Um, um, well, that, that does, I mean, it is one of the things that I, I've wondered about is sort of how do you dispositionally there's some great I mean it's just like any you know group of, of human beings I mean we're all over the the map when it comes to our levels of, of shyness or assertiveness or whatever so I mean in order to do a lot of these interpretive on the ground uh, you know methods you have to be somebody that's comfortable or can get to a point where you're fairly comfortable with chatting with people so that especially it's not necessarily you being comfortable, but they're comfortable with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so is that one of the things that there is, whether it's the Methods Cafe or the graduate students that you train or the graduate students that um, take your courses or even just, you know, the faculty and the scholars that you interact with, is there a selection effect already that folks that are already comfortable around other people generally are the ones that tend to go into those types of methods, or is it a little bit of a dynamic situation where they they figure out ways to become a little bit more mm-hmm. comfortable? Well, I can answer this kind of with a timeline. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think back to my experience in graduate school, um, I, I almost went into linguistics rather than political science. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. But I did go into political science because I said to myself, I want to understand the way the world works, Mm -hmm. (laughs) political economy, so to speak. And when I got out, I realized that my talents had not been nurtured. Mm -hmm. So I was hired to teach quantitative methods here at the University of Utah, and I taught quantitative methods for many years. And I was, you know, competent, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it was my strength. Um, So when I talk with the students, it's the notion of, well, ideally, all of us should get a little bit of knowledge in the with your methodological other, Mm -hmm. but then you want to do what you're good at, Mm -hmm. right? And what fits your personality and your and your strength. That's great. So that you have not a boot camp, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but a variety of different kinds of people, as well as different kinds of methods, as well as different kinds of theories. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so if you're really committed to methodological pluralism, I think it's at all those levels. Um, and you don't you don't expect scholars to be cookie cutters. You don't expect them to have the same career paths. Um, though, you know, we know under the current um, in, in in contemporary higher education, it's increasingly difficult, right, to support methodological pluralism. And because there's all, all kinds of uh, institutional structures and, and broader structures in higher education that that kind of winnow that out yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I, I just put together a new idea for um, my retirement writing in another year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was having an email conversation with Joe Sauce, who teaches at the Humphrey School. Mm-hmm. And he had he just revamped his research methods syllabus. And he had students from economics and sociology and political science. And part of what he said was that at the beginning – uh, some of the students were very defensive mm-hmm. about posi- or about interpretivism's critiques, but that 
by the end of the semester, the economists were saying, why didn't we know about these ideas before? <laughs> and having kind of robust discussions of methodological pluralism. Mm -hmm. And I had two very quantitative students in my class this semester, but we ended up having good, really good conversations. So I said, oh, now is the time to write an article that says, now is the time why a qualitative interpretive research methods course should be required. Mm -hmm. Because I think that, number one, you reach people while they're still open mm -hmm. and haven't absorbed kind of these stereotypes of science, of what that means, mm -hmm. and that quantitative researchers will be better researchers. Absolutely. If they are aware of, geez, the politics of category making, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's time to start to make that argument. I, I completely agree. And I, I, I also think – this is one of the things I'm, – I'm obviously selfish because I'm at the point where now I think about, you know, just folks that are both going to be good scholars uh, but also good colleagues. I think they just make better colleagues if they have an open mind to both – not just both, but all kinds of different uh, forms of methods and, and methodologies. That wasn't always the case. I, I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but when I was in graduate school, I feel like um, that there was just this assumption that if you were doing any qualitative or interpretive methods, and that, and that was a time when uh, you had the internet, so even if you didn't have a qualitative research methods course, uh, at your university, you could find a few syllabi. Mm -hmm. So originally, like, like that, um, you know, there, there were there were different consortiums. Now there's the the, the big one that Colin Elman runs, obviously out of uh, Syracuse. But you know, I think I've told you my um, first RA gig at Arizona State the year I was there was helping uh, Colin organize his. Uh, first course on qualitative research methods for the spring of 2001 mm -hmm. that then became the basis for his uh, uh, Institute for Qualitative Research yes. Methods summer camp. Um, and, uh, and and at least back then you had like that or you had um, – your, your, when was the first time you taught uh, interpretive or qualitative research methods course? Do you remember? Well, it, first it started to come in in research design. Oh, you smuggled it in a little yeah. bit there. Well, yeah, because yeah. that's where you're considering a research question and yeah, what are the appropriate ways. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, that was where I started introducing interpretive methods before we had the required course. Mm -hmm. So we would have people, I'd give students the same topic and they'd pair up and one would come up with a quantitative project in research design. One would do more positivist um, comparative case study mm -hmm. and one would do interpretive. Oh, that's great. And then they'd give presentations and you'd hear kind of the different ways that people formulated the questions and generated the evidence mm -hmm. and, and thought about what they were going to do. So that's really where it started was when we started to require research design. Mm -hmm. And then from there you developed your – Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, for, for me then it was um, – I mean kind of getting back to sort of the – the, the the friction for me in graduate school was it, I think there was this assumption that if you did interpretive or qualitative research methods, 
especially even even by then there was the KKV qualitative research method. So especially if you were at all moving away from even that as qualitative research, research methods, um, then it was because you couldn't hack it as a yes. quantitative scholar, right? <laughs> yeah. That you'd failed and you'd washed out. And so the leftovers are all the ones that are right. kind of doing qualitative uh, interpretive methods. And so a status. Yeah, there of. absolutely was a status. And um, but then, you know, you looked at, I mean, again, in the early 2000s, you could you could find syllabi of these courses being taught elsewhere. And I remember Hayward Alker's, uh, <laughs> his syllabus for interpretive methods. I mean, if you looked at it, there's no way you would have thought about, you know, this being the course you took because you couldn't hack it as a quantitative right, scholar. Right, I mean, right. holy cow. And even just trying to keep up with Hayward in conversations was <laughs> impossible unless you really were on your game mm-hmm. um, and you knew a lot of literature across the different subfields, across different uh, approaches to, to research questions. Um, and so, you know, getting back to like the way in which you taught the research design course and then also the way in which you teach qualitative research methods, getting this out there for graduate students in their first year or in their first couple of years that, you know, there are different ways to approach this is is huge because I think even then and probably still to this day in, in political science, when you take a research design course, probably the default is this is the way you approach the research questions and these are the methods that well, should inevitably follow. What can blow people's minds about interpretivism is you say to somebody, you know, you can do empirical research without variables. And they look at you and, you know, if they've never heard of interpretivism, they've never heard of category analysis or metaphor analysis Mm -hmm. or ethnography, they are a little uh, Mm shell-shocked, really. Um, So helping to people, people to understand empirical research without variables because, you know, we start getting taught as early as grade school Mm -hmm. that that's what research is. Well, and not only that, but I mean, it's 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 in some of the discourse around us. I mean, even if uh, causality can be very, very, I think it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, in some cases in social sciences to prove. Politicians talk with causal narratives all the time, right? Yes, so yes. even I mean, we we get inundated by that, and the, even the even the word because <laughs> it's because of the you know yeah. Um, so I I think that 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 can be something that folks when they enter into a especially by the time they get to a PhD a decision to pursue pursue PhDs they're thinking about that already. Um, so I wanted to uh, touch base on a, a couple more things before I go to my concluding. Uh, uh, questions that I had uh, for you about sort of uh, uh, tricks of the trade, so to speak. But um, your more recent work is focused on uh, IRBs, DART uh, t- to some extent. And then also you and I have had these discussions about the the metrics kind of um, – <laughs> <laughs> the 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 metrics that all of us seem to be under um, uh, and, and the standardization of higher education more broadly. Um, but uh, how did you – how and when did you get sort of um, caught on to the politics of, of IRBs and, and, and DART? Obviously, the DART controversy is something that's been going on for, for a few years now. Uh, and was really centralized, especially in in the um, in the the absent, APSA governing uh, meetings and and APSR and some of the journals, um, but also the IRBs. Uh, wh- where did all of that um, and when did all of that sort of pop up under your radar? 
Well, it goes back to some extent to graduating before the common rule and having the autonomy as a young assistant professor to mm-hmm. go ahead and go down to the Women's Encampment of Future Peace and Justice and 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 do some research. And start asking questions, right? Um, So I had that experience of not having to ask permission. Mm -hmm. So after the common rule, um, in which they really kind of cracked down and expanded IRB uh, to the social sciences, Mm -hmm. um, I had to start going through IRB. And... um, I found it very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And uh, strange. Mm-hmm. Strange in terms of the way they were thinking about ethics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in 2006, uh, I had a sabbatical and I laid out about three different projects and I showed them to Devorah and she said, Oh, well, I'm interested in IRB. Mm-hmm. Bingo. <laughs> so we started. <laughs> and you're off and running. We started yeah. thinking about IRBs in 2006, and that's when I started educating myself about the history of IRBs, mm-hmm. the regulations. And that was the point at which I really wished I had a photographic memory to keep a handle on you know, regulatory ideas. I mean, I never thought that I would be reading the Federal Register, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though as a PA scholar, of course, I know about the Federal Register. Um, But reading that technical language, learning about this very decentralized policy, um, yeah, and, and the more I learned the more worried I got. I mean, maybe worry is worry is a good word. I mean, really, actually, I got angry. Mm -hmm. I felt really enraged in many ways by that policy Um, and its its extension and application to to the social sciences. As a one-size-fits-all. As a one-size-fits-all, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And the ways in which my own efforts within the University of Utah um, were rebuffed, mm-hmm. really. And and it was clear that they thought of me as a crank, as someone who really did just didn't understand. Um, and, you know, people often ask me, have you served on an IRB? And I said, I can't in good conscience, you know, discipline my, my fellow academics yep. in that way. And you can't educate... Well, what people do is they educate campus by campus by campus by campus, but that doesn't last, mm-hmm. right? Uh, somebody rotates off the committee. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Uh, that learning is lost, mm-hmm. and so then I started looking. Or they at, leave the university. And, or they leave yeah. the university. Yeah, so I started mm-hmm. looking at the regulatory system and the way in which the regulatory system prevents learning. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know what enrages me the most is that if you look around. Uh, um, the United States at various regulatory policies and and ways in which we try to get people to do the right thing, there's always an appeals process. Mm -hmm. But the IRB process lacks a formal appeals process. (laughs) So there is no way for me to formally register, Mm -hmm. right, complaints about the process 
if we had a formal appeals process, maybe over the last 30 years, we would have learned something mm-hmm. about social science research. Mm-hmm. But we don't learn. Because you'd, you'd have a sort of running track record of the exceptions. Yeah. To yeah. the one-size-fits-all right. sort of right. adjudication. Yeah. yeah. I mean, another model that could have been used is more a common law model mm-hmm. of regulation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in which – what emerges kind of organically are precedents Mm -hmm. that people can consult. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're a graduate student, you know nothing about this regulatory system with its IRB speak Mm -hmm. and its power to prevent you from graduating. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the part, I guess, that makes me the angriest, that there's no appeals system and basically the decisions are made in secret. Well, and then, I mean, additionally, what's, what what happens then is some of the, we talked about this earlier, the institutional constraints. So then it just works its way back to the graduate student in terms of the, that they're letting that determine then the types of research questions that they ask. Right. And then they're going to pursue because if, at a certain point, they're going to be. There's going to be this inevitable roadblock mm-hmm. um, that is completely flying blind. You you have no sort of way of knowing going into it, um, especially if you don't have a mentor or an advisor yes. that's familiar with it whatsoever. Um, how how to get through that? Mm-hmm. And is it is it also the additional layer that at least. U.S., especially Research One universities, but but a lot of universities across the United States, and and, and I would imagine this is international as well, um, are are predisposed to not necessarily opening up that process, um, or does it just depend on the university, uh, like in terms of providing an like a sort of um, maybe a you know a sort of sub office of a graduate college or whatever that could function to help the graduate students know what they needed to know going into an IRB process it's very difficult to know in the US mm-hmm. because it is up to the universities. So there's incredible variability. Right. So one person can say, oh, they're so great. And another person, you hear stories about how unreasonable they are. Mm-hmm. So that is part of the difficulty as as well. Um, it's really the Anglosphere that has copied the U.S. So it's mm-hmm. Canada, U.K., Australia. Mm-hmm. Um and then it's starting to bubble up a little bit in in Europe. Okay. But but yeah, some European scholars can come here and do research. Right here, yeah. And ask, you know, do an interview in a way that I would be prohibited from doing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's yeah. – Right. And then the other big problem, of course, is because of the biomedical model and origins, they have no conception of studying up. Mm-hmm. And what it means to study power mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The, the complex ethical issues, the actual ethical issues that social scientists face really aren't, aren't part of the IRB process. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the other kind of frustration. And, of course, you know, an institution that discourages social scientists from interacting with people mm-hmm. was problematic for right. the social sciences. Well, and there's also the um, – there, there's also the the critical 
Well, I mean, contemporary political moment that we're in where the the interactions with people has never seemed more urgent yes. or necessary for the types of inquiry that that we're that we're supposed to be doing. Um, I mean, Brexit and and the the U.S. presidential election of 2016 seem to be the two biggest uh, examples. I even remember. <laughs> um, gosh, it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been much later than six or seven in the morning, uh, the day, the morning after the uh, November 2016 presidential election, um, when nobody really predicted that that Trump would win. Oh, no, not quite. Um, right, exactly. So you <laughs> sent an email out to all of us oh, in the department. Right. Yeah, you I remember, did. Um, uh, including Kathy Kramer Walsh, Kramer's, Kramer Walsh's uh, a study uh, in there of going and, and talking to people. Yes, right? yes. Um, and it's like how you know. I, I mean, there should just be a flood of doing good work as opposed to the types of, of journalistic accounts of going and sitting in some diner in in Iowa over and over and over again with the same Trump voters of doing uh, good interpretive ethnographic work. Mm-hmm. All over, all over the place yes. um, with folks uh, about, you know, politics and, and anxiety and, and, and all of these things that seem to be animating the, the public nowadays. Um, there should be just a flood of dissertation proposals mm. looking at that. And yet, um, how many of those get, you know, sort of blocked from even right. happening because of the IRB process? And the other tricky part is that people will then think I don't care about research ethics because I criticize IRBs, right? It's like, no, no. no. It's because I care about research ethics. Absolutely. You know, political science in particular or APSA in particular mm-hmm. has kind of ceded research ethics to IRBs. Many universities have done that. Big mistake, mm-hmm. right? Now, hopefully APSA will be kind of reclaiming the research ethics terrain in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I have a couple of um, just professional questions just generally that I always wonder. So where do you do and when do you do your best writing? (laughs) Office, home, traveling, all of the above, none of the above, coffee shop? Uh, Coffee shops, Mm -hmm. a lot. My best writing is when I wake up with ideas. I'm I'm – I wake up and I am composing sentences and mm-hmm. I run down to my basement office and turn on the machine and write. Now, those, those moments, of course, are produced through other work where you're kind of immersing yourself in a document or you have a bad day and nothing's happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when I wake up with sentences in my brain – Mm-hmm. I run down and write. You do right away. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh-huh. if you know, if I'm not teaching or something. Sure, sure. Uh, but that 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 part's that. You know, when you have those kind of writing experiences where it flows out. I know. I, it, you yep. know, and and you can't predict that, right? So the students always ask me, "Does it get easier?" And you kind of go, "Well, sometimes kind of depends on the topic." <laughs> yeah, and that was always the t- honestly that was the toughest thing for me because I had those moments in graduate. School where I had sort of open-ended my, – my time didn't feel as compartmentalized, so I had a little bit more of an open-ended, especially my last couple of years of graduate school, to do that. And so I, I mean I, I still tell my graduate students nowadays, I did probably about 70 to 80 percent of my dissertation between the – you know, this is before I had kids. So between the hours of like 10 p.m. and, and 6 a.m. And I would actually go to Java House and I would sit at a coffee shop at about 9 o'clock at night and get a – powerful cup of coffee (laughs) 
at night, you know. But I, I would just I would I was basically a third shift writer and I would just it would be open ended. I wouldn't have to sit down and write right. during that time. I could do some reading if I needed to, but there it was so open ended that it felt like it could kind of liberate me to, mm-hmm. to do my writing. The toughest thing when I had kids and especially when I got an assistant professor position and it's only become more difficult through time is having to try to crunch everything into yes, those crazy yes. times. But that's why for me at least the early part of the morning is great because especially if I wake up a little bit early, I can do that. Um, and then the writing just can can really flow mm-hmm. to the point where you, you feel like you don't want to stop. Right, right. I mean, th- that's my best brain time. Mm-hmm. I'm a morning person, so 5 a.m. is good for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's where you get your work done. Well, um, and then how – talking about a little bit of the scholarly care of the self um, and especially the types of research that you do dealing with, well, you know, stuff that (laughs) will – I think we all get sort of enraged by our topics, uh, which can be a good thing, Mm -hmm. right, Um, because it kind of keeps us going. It's maybe the things that wake us up in the middle of the the night or the morning. Um, But whether you need downtime or not, how do you kind of keep going? How do you recharge? and it's, I'm thinking of like especially junior scholars that I chat with that are doing really intense ethnographic work or field research where they're engaging a lot of uh, subjects, uh, both human subjects but also uh, topics that are really difficult mm-hmm. to, to deal with. They they right now don't seem to need to recharge because they're just charged <laughs> and they're charging ahead. But you know the the thing I worry about, especially with contemporary or contemporary political moment, is that they're still going to be able to do this in ten or fifteen years. So how have you been able to to continue doing this? Whether it's like you know, do do you take trips? Are there certain things, certain practices that you do to, that kind of allow you to take a break from from all of it and kind of decompress a little bit? Or how is it that you've been able to keep going? Because you're still very, like I am, very animated about your research. Um, but obviously, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So yeah. how do you kind of keep going? Well, um, I had about 15 years where I did yoga almost every morning. Okay. Yep. Um, I went to a yoga retreat, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of let tried to let go of academic status stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and then I discovered when I was on my first sabbatical, and I had all this time, I was so anxious. <laughs> Oh, I gotta be productive. Yeah, I know. So I found. I'm only laughing because I had the same exact experience. I, I found what are called uh, brave wa- brainwave tapes, mm-hmm. and you lie down on the floor, and for 30 minutes you have this like these brainwave music that goes mm-hmm. through your head, and you wake up and you go, "Hey, I'm ready to write." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you say, "Okay, I'm, I'm." It's all about the process. I'm going to enjoy the process. Mm-hmm. But I really needed a technique to do that because of the anxiety from the notion that I had to be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do talk about self-care with graduate students. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, because the university would be happy if we self-exploited ourselves to death. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't say that. They have all this this care, but all of that care work is inconsistent with the incentives, with the, the right. m- measurements, mm-hmm. you know. So it's all like on you, the individual. Well, yeah, but if you change the the measures a little bit, it mm-hmm. wouldn't just be on me, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it'd be more of a community. Yeah, effort. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know I <laughs> – 
How did you, how and when did you, were you able to kind of let go of the status stuff? Because I see that so much in academia. And I, to be honest, I'm pretty, um, it's, it's, it's becoming easier for me to kind of just say, I, I don't, what, when I go, but, but again, you're around it all the time. So anytime I go to a conference, um, most of the folks I hang out with are the, you know, my fellows kind of motley crew of folks that, you know, we get together and, you know, we kind of just catch up with one another about mainly just about, you know, life and family stuff and life stages. And, and, you know, we blow off a little bit of steam, but you do run into the receptions and the, and the situations and the environments where people are, trying to compare each other's CVs or and or, you know, wh- which institution and, and, and which uh, individuals got which jobs and that kind of stuff. So we're, we're around it all the time. So how, w- how were you able to kind of um, let go of it to a, to, to a certain degree? Well, the, the first step was um, at conferences, I, I went to the Women's Caucus. Yes. Yeah. So you find the right groups <laughs> so the of women's, folks. Well, the yeah. Women's Caucus are full of feminists who do critique. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, um, you know, this this retreat and, and meditation mm-hmm. at that point was, you know, what really matters. And for me, what matters is I want – I want those experiences where you talk about ideas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want the the Paris salons, you know, obviously that's not happening every day in your academic life, right. but I can point to conference experiences where I am like, oh, yeah, this is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. But that conversation was so amazing. And that I have to give credit to Devoriano because – I mean, she has pushed me in ways where I get done with a conversation. I thought, oh, my God, I would never have thought of those ideas Mm -hmm. until we had that conversation. So, you know, an interlocutor like her who can get you to think and and to – well, because, you know, it's so easy for us to get halfway through a good idea, Mm -hmm. to get to the end of the idea where other people can – follow it, right? Mm-hmm. That is really one of her strengths. And and some of those conversations, you know, those kinds of conversations are why I'm an academic, why we're intellectuals. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about ideas. And that's what's worrisome about both IRB and DART and the metrics mm-hmm. is they're narrowing, you know, what was uh, uh, C. Wright Mills called the sociological imagination right. down to being technicians. And when you're done... You're done. That's in the past. Now it's like, well, what do you – you know, the, it incentivizes everyone to just say, OK, well, I, I published it. It's it's on the CV, but now I'm done with that. Now what's the next thing you're doing? Whereas it should be looked at as any single thing that's on the CV is a conversation that needs to and, and uh, continue, yeah. right? Um, and that's always been – that's always been a challenge with, well, what are you publishing now? And what, what is it, you know, which journal is it? And, you know, what's the, what's yeah, the yeah. impact factor of that? Instead and, of where's the conversation absolutely. I want to join. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because you can join a journal where nobody cares about that topic. Right. Right. <laughs> oh, well, who's going to read that? Right. right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you, Perry. 
Thank you, Grant. It's been a pleasure. This has been wonderful. We could talk all day, and we, we probably will at, at some point. But uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to chat. And uh, I wish you well this summer. I'm sure I'll see you, but I wish yes. you well this summer. And you have a trip coming up, so that'll be fun. And, and thanks for everything. Okay. Thanks, right. Grant. Thanks. Okay. Well, that was my interview with Perry Schwartzshay. I hope you enjoyed it. We covered a lot of interesting topics. And towards the end, one of the questions and issues that we discussed that we're going to discuss usually at the end of most of my interviews uh, regarding how we kind of keep going in this vocation, sort of what we do to take care of ourselves and and that kind of stuff, because it can be a little bit depressing and dejecting and demoralizing. So we kind of covered that and what Perry does to kind of keep going and what I do to kind of keep going. Um, so hope hope you enjoyed that episode and that interview with Perry. The next um, interview I'm going to do for this podcast is with uh, a buddy of mine from the University of Glasgow, Kian O'Driscoll. I recorded that interview at the University of Warwick for a workshop that we were both attending on the politics of humor back earlier this month as well. That'll be a two-parter. You'll notice that it's uh, a little bit longer and we went into a little bit more detail about his journey or trajectory as a scholar. So that I'm going to split into two podcast episodes, but that'll be the next one. So until then, hope everyone's doing well out there and that you're enjoying your summer or for my Australian friends, you are uh, enjoying the approaching winter that's coming up. All right. Talk to everyone later. See you. Bye. Mm -hmm.